in between episode 12. Today, I'm going to talk about six books which I have read in the past, I'm going to say, 8 to 12 months. So you can decide which ones you'd like to read and which ones you want to skip. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The six books that I am going to discuss today, all of which I think have definite redeeming qualities depending on who you are and what you're interested in. The six are Catastrophic Care, How American Healthcare Killed My Father and How We Can Fix It by David Goldhill. Another one is An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How to Take It Back by Elizabeth Rosenthal. We will also talk about, briefly, America's Bitter Pill, Money, Politics, Backroom Deals, and the Fight to Fix Our Broken Healthcare System, which was written by Stephen Brill a while back. Another one is The Patient Will See You Now, The Future of Medicine is in Your Hands by Eric Topol. Lastly, Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our healthcare system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it by Andy Lazarus. So let's just kick it off here with Catastrophic Care, which is written by David Goldhill and is the poster child for conservatives in this country, but also those advocating consumerism. Everybody's talking about it. If you haven't read it yet, I'd say read it. David Goldhill, interestingly, is actually the president of the Game Show Network, but he does a very commendable job explicating the tangled web that we have woven in the healthcare system. I mean, his main point is that the healthcare system does not follow any economic model previously here to seen on earth. You know, supply and demand, throw them out the window. In fact, he calls the healthcare system an island and then, you know, every other industry in the universe, the mainland. And he talks about how there's such convoluted laws and rules that manage what goes on on this island of healthcare, as he calls it, that would just simply not survive on the mainland. You know, here's one. On the mainland, If you have more suppliers or less demand, prices tend to fall. That's not true in healthcare. You know, take Florida, for example. There's more healthcare services, more healthcare suppliers available in Florida than pretty much anywhere else in the entire world. And guess where healthcare is most expensive? (laughs) Right in Florida. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that patients or consumers are not bearing the cost of what they do. So if you have a lot of suppliers and those suppliers, generally speaking, will drive demand. You know, if someone goes to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you need these tests and the patient's not paying for it themselves. So they're not concerned about what the cost of anything is, then they will likely get those tests. So the price starts to escalate. And the more specialists a patient sees, the more that patient is going to cost. David Goldhill spends a bunch of time talking about the moral hazard that goes on here. Here's an example. Dermatologists who own their own labs send an inordinate number of uh, biopsies 
to be sampled by a wide margin more than dermatologists that don't have a financial interest in lab services. You know, I'm sure if you talk to those dermatologists, their actions are justified. You know, it's the same thing if you, with other specialties as well, you know, the outpatient surgery centers, you get a physician who owns a piece of the action there, all of a sudden there's way more surgeries. Urologists are another often cited specialty where if a urologist has anything to do with a lab, suddenly everyone's getting lab tests. So this is not unusual. If doing those things uh, results in financial benefit to any individual, there's a potential there for things to spiral in perhaps an untoward direction. That's really what David Goldhill focuses on. And he says that nobody in the system, with two exceptions, patients and employers, nobody else in the entire system has any incentive whatsoever to put a check on the expenses which are incurred for moral hazard reasons, which basically drive healthcare costs through the roof in this country. David Goldhill isn't, in a large extent, interestingly, placing judgment on individuals who are doing the things that they're doing. He kind of treats them as rational actors, you know, like you throw a bunch of rational actors into a system with the incentives that are present in this country today. And like, no kidding, these people are doing the things that they're doing. That That is what an individual who is interested in maximizing their own profitability and making the most money possible, like, no kidding, this is what people will do given the reimbursement incentives, perverse or otherwise. If you want more information about this, listen to In Between Episode 10. David Goldhill feels like the solution to all of this is consumerism, that you have to have patients consider the cost of something because you can't evaluate the value of something if you're missing the cost factor. He, you know, he further states that because the cost factor isn't considered, that people weren't actually asking enough questions. And he's not talking about, you know, depending on what, what you look at, 50% of costs in this country are for acute care and 50%, that's a lot of billions of dollars, are for not acute care. So, so these are people who are not in a bad way. You know, they are perfectly capable of, of asking questions, but no one's asking, hey, do I really need that test? No one's asking, really, how much does that cost and what's the benefit of it? Like, okay, you know, maybe there's a slight benefit, but is it worth $10,000? Or, you know, inquiring with the diligence that they might inquire if anyone asked them to shell out dollars out of their own pocket. David Goldhill basically says the the way that you make sure that prices accurately reflect the worth of something, you use capitalism. Capitalism is very efficient in doing that. He also holds up Singapore as a example of where this consumerism works well. And I got to tell you, in Singapore, Singapore spends about 4% of their GDP on healthcare. We in the United States spend about 18%. I mean, you could argue 
certain circumstances, but largely the by any measure, the outcomes that they achieve in Singapore are very comparable to the outcomes that we have here. So basically, they're getting exactly the same results at a fourth of the cost. So I wouldn't argue in, in any way, shape or form that we should disregard what they're doing, because I do believe that lessons can be learned there. But I have the same issue <laughs> with using Singapore as this gold standard as I do with people who hold up the single payer as a gold standard. I, you know, I, I think that both of them definitely have huge lessons that we can learn, but with some disclaimers that need to be thought through. In Singapore, for example, a lot of the, the money goes into public healthcare delivery. You know, one of the things that is often overlooked on Facebook, I got to tell you, everyone is fixated on health insurance. And as I said in episode 10, health insurance is not healthcare and healthcare is not health. And one of the main reasons insurance is so expensive in this country is that healthcare is so expensive. Every year, the price of healthcare goes up and up and up. And it goes up for two reasons. Number one, because Americans are demanding more and more services because no one's questioning the procedures and, and tests. So if you, you, you know, you can look at any number of, of, of statistics, like for example, Mohs surgery, just like went up like, am I going to remember the exact number? No, let me make something up. It was like sevenfold in a couple of years. And it's being used for all kinds of things that it might not necessarily be necessary, that other much less expensive things would work better or at least just as well at, you know, a tenth or less of the cost. All kinds of other procedures and tests, which might not be exactly necessary, like a lot of knee surgeries, um, a lot of lower back treatments. Same thing, especially the diagnostics. You know, everyone agrees that they don't do much, but nobody's questioning the the cost of those things. And whatever the market will bear is the price that's being charged. What the market will bear, remember what I just said, nobody's got any incentive to hold the cost down. So what the market will bear can increase radically year over year. I mean, you look at the price of pharmaceutical products. The Price could triple in, in the space of a very short period of time. And, and don't think that that's not true uh, across the board. So I'm not calling out pharma without making sure that, you know, we're also not paying attention to medical devices or, or other services, diagnostics, procedures, because for those things, the prices can rise just as much. One thing is very clear that the price of patient care is increasing exponentially. And people don't pay attention to that, sadly. And we need to. So back to Singapore, a lot of the, the things that the government funds is public hospitals, not just insurance. So that's one big difference. You know, would Americans be keen on public hospitals? We talk about the single payer system would be interested in the, a single hospital system <laughs> because we're, we're not going to get affordable health care, to be perfectly frank, unless we can get affordable health care. <laughs> Another thing that's really interesting about Singapore, and, you know, this kind of bleeds a little bit into my my problem with naively touting single payer as the answer to all of our issues. It's certainly the answer to some issues. But here's the thing with both Singapore and countries that have single payer. In Singapore, there's no guns. There's no drugs. 
And the government kind of has a heavy hand in a lot of stuff. Like, for example, it doesn't just do a PSA and recommend no smoking. It pretty much makes sure that people don't smoke, which is similar in a different direction than what goes on with a lot of the very successful single payer systems, which is often overlooked. Much of healthcare outcomes, and there's a pie chart by Robert Wood Johnson. In that chart, it shows that only about 20% of health outcomes are driven by what goes on in a clinical setting. 80% of the health that someone achieves occurs because of something that is outside of the healthcare system. This could be what kind of food are they eating? Do they have transportation? Do they know, are they exercising? Do they have a place to exercise? You know, are there sidewalks on this, the, the road so that they can walk? What environment do they live in? Are they breathing dirty air? Are they drinking water with lead in it? These are things that have more impact on health than, you know, whether you get this test or that test. In Europe, where those single payer systems reign. And I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with the the Swedish system. There is a large social safety net. There is nobody in Sweden who doesn't have food. There is great public transportation in Sweden. People are cared for in those countries in a way that they're not cared for here. And that impacts health outcomes. So it's a little bit of um of a mistake to credit single payer systems with, you know, entirely with health outcomes in those countries. And in addition, you can't really compare costs very well because the cost of the single payer system doesn't include the cost of all of those other social safety nets. Another aspect that makes it tough to compare costs and which I think people on Facebook should think a little bit harder about is that in those European single payer systems, choices are limited. Just because a patient feels they want and need some very expensive pharmaceutical or treatment doesn't mean that those systems will pay for it. There are, and this is true in Singapore as well, there is a limited number of things the governments are deeming as appropriate and cost-effective therapies, which are paid for. And if you want something that's not on the list, you're paying for it yourself entirely. The last time this was brought up in this country, we had Sarah Palin on the warpath about death panels. Once again, not passing judgment, just things to consider. I don't feel are within the consideration set of many individuals who are hell-bent in some direction or another. I heard someone say recently, healthcare is complicated. <laughs> Do I think that single payer is not worth looking at because of those things? Absolutely not. You know, we're in a place in this country. We got a uniquely American healthcare system, but we need to learn lessons from somebody. And we have other countries that are succeeding where we are not. So in our effort for continuous improvement, I think we really do need to look at the Singaporean system and we really do need to look at, at single payer. There's another book along the same lines as catastrophic care. 
And by along the same lines, I mean, it's looking at what are the cost drivers in the system? What are these things that are accelerating the cost curve and making costs of healthcare delivery just rise as crazy as they are rising? And that book is the one by Elizabeth Rosenthal called An American Sickness, How Healthcare Became Big Business and How You Can Take It Back. Here's the thing with this book. It is deeply researched. It gets into how every stakeholder has and exploits the opportunity to charge as much as possible, as often as possible, for healthcare services. I think the main difference between her and David Goldhill is that Elizabeth Rosenthal is shocked and surprised by the behavior of the human beings, providers, and insurance companies who are perpetuating these things. I'm not saying that it's not warranted, but it surprises me how surprised she is, given the fact that in any other industry, you know, I get that healthcare, that, you know, everyone's supposed to be very noble and everyone's supposed to be putting the patient first. But the fact of the matter is you you can be in this business for 10 minutes and start to realize, you know, in this country, we don't practice evidence-based medicine. We practice reimbursement-based medicine. Like that should surprise no one. One stakeholder after another, from medical schools to patient advocacy groups to hospitals to long-term care facilities to subacute facilities to insurance companies to professional organizations for physicians, you can't find a stakeholder w- within the system who isn't gaming the system for their own benefit. Elizabeth Rosenthal articulates seven or eight laws of healthcare business. One of them. I think it's the first one, is more is always better. That the most aggressive care, the most care, the most you can possibly do for a patient, whatever you can figure out to do, that's going to be the thing that people do. You know, and it's not surprising because the more you do, especially in a fee-for-service model, the more you get paid. You get paid for volume. You do lots of things. Elizabeth Rosenthal intersects with Andy Lazarus, who wrote a book very much from the physician standpoint. And the book is Curing Medicare, a doctor's view on how our health system is failing older Americans and how we can fix it. Um, Once again, by Dr. Andy Lazarus. And Andy Lazarus is a geriatric physician, and he's talking about the elderly here. But the the theme of, of his book, which gives some very touching and succinct examples of this, you'll often see instances where providers are choosing to try to fix persistent problems, some of which are found by testing and cause no or minimal symptoms. And they try to fix them by utilizing the most draconian and invasive methods available. Sometimes I hear when I, when I have these conversations, someone will inevitably bring up the legal ramifications in malpractice. And if something is discovered on a test, then we must pursue it other, you know, for fear of legal ramifications. That's probably true. It could be true. What do I know? I have no idea whether it's true or not. I would say, though, that there's moral hazard, which should be considered. 
because there's an upside to pursuing the aggressive testing or treatment in the form of RVUs, in the form of financial returns. So it's easy for things to roll off the tongue, such as malpractice, when there's an upside as well. Does one outweigh the other? I don't know, but I would bring it up because I think it deserves to be brought up. The other thing I think deserves to be brought up is that, you know, if the question is, why are we doing this aggressive testing, diagnostics, procedures? And the answer is, because I don't want to get sued. Where's the patient? It, it would seem to me that the first answer to why are you doing this treatment should be because it behooves the patient. So my other kind of problem with the number of times that malpractice comes up is that we're doing things to the patient that don't serve the patient, that serve ourselves. You know, Andy Lazarus gives any number of examples in the book of basically people dying on the operating table or so someone's dying of liver cancer and they're getting Mohs surgery. You know, one of the things that we don't think about in this country is what is the risk of the intervention? The only risk that we really consider is, is the risk of the – actually, you know what? We don't even necessarily consider – I was going to say we, the only risk we consider is, is the risk of the disease or the underlying condition. But a lot of times it's not necessarily discussed what the risk of that thing is. Um, it might not kill you if you are elderly. But if you go in and try to you know, cut it out and then go through aggressive chemotherapy, you might die from that. Andy Lazarus' book is a very interesting read to cure Medicare because I can see from both personal experience as well from, as from, you know, kind of macroeconomic experience that what he's saying is absolutely true, that people are choosing very, very expensive, aggressive uh, treatments, which really don't do much at great cost to the system, but also at great cost to them personally. My 97-year-old grandmother, who every single year goes to a cardiologist to get a stress test, and every single year the cardiologist comes back and says that her heart valve has serious problems, what does he think he's going to do? Operate? At the first cut of the knife, she'd be toast. Meanwhile, every year, she comes back from the doctor completely stressed out immediately, you know, I'm going to say within the next three days, thinks she's having a heart attack and she's in the emergency room, I'm going to say three to five times in, in the, the subsequent months after that test. What is the point of that? You can look at what the cost of those procedures are, which are also rising, but the number of procedures like that completely meaninglessly, you know, and either at best do nothing, at worst do actual harm to the patient. Those are those are the things that we need to really start thinking about, both at a personal level, but also at a macroeconomic level. I'm not going to say much about Stephen Burrell's book, America's Bitter Pill, The Money Politics, Backroom Deals, and Fight to Fix Our Broken Healthcare System. The only thing that I would say, because just as it's been it's been talked about to death, it's it's a couple of years old right now, it is a very enlightening book. I I would, in some respects, highly recommend people who comment a lot on Facebook to make sure that they read this book. Recently, I ran across a post by someone who said health, the healthcare industry had donated, you know, lobbied 
Republican politicians to repeal the ACA so that they could make more money. She needs to read Stephen Brill's book, which would set her straight off real quick. Because <laughs> what, what Brill's book does is it goes through all of the political machinations which were required in order to pass the ACA. One of the big highlights that takes up hundreds of pages in the manuscript is basically how the bill, I was going to use the word pandered, that might not be what I'm looking for, but is the product of, let's just say, the influence of the healthcare industry. But once again, I think this goes to the larger point that what we really need to be looking at here is healthcare delivery. And the ACA does really nothing to address the issue of healthcare delivery. It, what it does is it gets everyone access to healthcare vis-a-vis -vis insurance. But what the ACA does not do is curtail what things cost or what you can buy with that insurance, i.e. why the affordable might not be necessarily the operative term in a number of <laughs> cases, in many cases. And why would it be? If nothing is done to curtail the costs, then why is anybody surprised that things cost a lot? And also, why is anybody surprised that premiums are so high? You know, premiums are a function of how much is the outlay going to be that the insurance company needs to spend. So if costs are high, then clearly premiums are going to be high. I'm just going to touch very briefly on Eric Topol's latest missive titled, The Patient Will See You Now, The Future of Medicine Is In Your Hands. I like Eric Topol. I've seen him speak a number of times. He's kind of giddy with excitement in many cases about the prospect of innovation and invention in, in healthcare and technology in healthcare. And I love an optimist. The, the one thing that is absent from his books, and maybe I just noticed because this is my day job, oftentimes the business of, of healthcare takes a, a backseat. He, he's got some rosy-eyed glasses relative to the motivations of stakeholders. For example, tech companies may be the savior of our system. They may be disruptive, but oftentimes they become players pretty fast. So, you know, you've got a venture-backed healthcare company. What's the point of that company? Make money. So now you wade into this quagmire of perverse incentives. And you can see a way forward. You can see a way that it's really easy for you or easier to make a couple of bucks. Now, are you a disruptor or are you part of the problem? And I really don't know of very many health tech companies who last very long in the system whose business models don't are, are not colored by how to make money in the healthcare system. Here's one example. In Eric Topol's book, he starts talking about Cast Light Health and, and how great they are because they promote healthcare transparency, you know, price transparency, which is, you know, of course a big deal. You, you know, it's, it's unfair for a patient to not know how much something costs until they get the bill months later. Here's how Elizabeth Rosenthal sees Cast Light Actually, she's talking about a Castlight competitor, Com Compass, but same idea. 
Compass charges about $50 a head to employers to act as patient advocates so that patients, they can help patients get the lower cost. So Elizabeth Rosenthal says, all right, why are they doing that? Why don't they just put out a price list? Why don't they just put out a price list and it shows for, you know, all the different providers for different services, how much that provider is going to charge, you know, overall, and then what the patient outlay is going to be at that particular facility. Why don't they just do that? And, you know, she's got a point. That's what, you know, if, if Castlight or Compasses, if their main mission was to disrupt healthcare and actually provide price transparency, of course they would do that. That's the right way to solve that problem. But they're not going to do it. Why? Because they can make a whole lot more money charging $50 a head to employers. And if they put a price list out there, then the need for their, you know, advocacy <laughs> diminishes precipitously. Castlight and Compass, they're running a business. What do you expect? And while I'm on the topic of, of digital health, I would be remiss to not mention the book by Robert Watchter, which is called The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age. I'd highly recommend that. In fact, I would recommend it more than, than, than Topol's book. What Watchter gets into is, I, I think, a fairly balanced view of what technology can bring but also what we need to pay attention to. You know, there, there's a cost to, to technology, which everyone I think is very familiar with, that you go to the doctor and the doctor's typing on the computer and not making eye contact. And it's putting all these administrative burdens on physicians who are growing to very much dislike the technology, which could be doing great things. So what Watchster, his, his main point is, is that we, we need to be careful how we're rolling these things out so that we can take advantage of the upsides without alienating every physician or causing them to absolutely despise their profession, which is bad, especially when you consider that many of these technologies were set up for billing, not for patient care. So basically, they're sitting at their computer trying to maximize billing as opposed to talking to their patient and trying to maximize health. So I'm not going to wrap this up into any conclusions, except that there's a lot of really great books out there. These six, like I said, bubble to the top when I thought about what books I wanted to talk about. These are the six I thought of immediately. If anyone has any other books that they would recommend I put on my list, I would love to hear from you. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.